How does the practice of meditation change the brain? You are listening to ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and joining me today is Dr. Daniel Siegel, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, where he is on the faculty of the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development. He is also the director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational organization that focuses on how the development of insight and empathy in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. Dr. Siegel is the author of many books, his most recent being The Mindful Brain. Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Caskell. It's a pleasure. Well, I'd like to start a little by talking about meditation and its benefits, its difficulties. What is the primary purpose of one to practice meditation? The word meditation brings up a lot of different reactions in different people. When I was in medical school, I would hear the word meditation and get this kind of new age vision of something that was brand new and kind of unfounded in any kind of useful science or useful practice even. But it's important to examine our reactions to the word meditation because meditation really just means how to develop the mind. That's really all it means. And there's hundreds of practices of meditation. It's just like the word exercise. What are you actually exercising? And in meditation, it's a focused practice that exercises certain aspects of mental functioning. In the notion of mindfulness meditation, there's a very specific kind of practice that's developing a state of mind called mindful awareness, which has very interesting and important benefits for physiological well-being, for psychological well-being, and for relational well-being. And so the research that's now just emerging from a number of mindfulness-based practices is that this form of developing the mind actually helps body, mind, and relationships. Well, I'd like to explore that a little more. How have we been able to quantify or qualify the actual changes that are going on in the brain during meditation? You know, this is a very exciting time in this new millennium because what happened was there have been, in every culture, there are mindfulness practices in the Christian culture, in the Jewish tradition, in Hinduism, in the Islamic faith in Buddhism, in Taoism, in all of these different practices that are found East and West, there have been practices to help focus people's minds on the present moment. What happened in the United States was one of those practices, a division of Buddhist practice called insight meditation, was actually developed in this country in the last 30 years. It was brought over from Southeast Asia. And then it was applied through the work of a number of people, including John Kabat-Zinn, in the medical setting, in a practice called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And the letters that allow us to say that quickly are MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, by John Kabat-Zinn. And what Kabat-Zinn was able to do was to join forces with a a number of scientists. He's trained as a scientist himself, working at uh, UMass Worcester. But he then began to work with Richie Davidson, a psychologist studying the brain aspects of emotional functioning. And together, in the beginning of this decade, they were able to publish work that John Kabat-Zinn had been developing over several decades to show, in fact, that what happens with this mindfulness practice in an eight-week course for previously uninitiated individuals, people unexperienced in mindfulness practice, is that they were able to improve immune function, 
improve a sense of psychological well-being, have in terms of brain function what's called a left shift, which means when you take the baseline EEG, the electroencephalogram, there's more activity at baseline in the left prefrontal areas than the right. And what that's thought to involve is what's called an approach mindset, which means in this particular view, we approach things that are difficult, like a medical illness or a stressful part of our lives, rather than withdraw from it. So in all of these ways, for example, the left shift, the degree of left shift was proportional to the improvement in immunoglobulin function. And so there was some profound way in which physiological improvements, reactions to a flu vaccine with immunoglobulin levels, and this left shift in EEG findings. So these are not subjective reports. These are absolute, numerically determined, research-verified findings correlated with this sense of well-being. And other studies then have shown that those improvements go along with improvements in our relationships with people. And then there's research to show that when we have enhanced relationships, longevity as well as medical health are improved. So in all these ways, we now have research-established data that a mindfulness practice can improve our health in body, mind, and relationships. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Today, we're talking with Dr. Daniel Siegel, director of the MindSight Institute and author of many books, the most recent being The Mindful Brain. Dr. Siegel, you mentioned that if we become more aware of ourselves, that it kind of helps our relationships and our ability to connect more fully with others. How, how does it translate? How does that happen? You know, it's a great question and a puzzling one because you can say, why would a practice that ultimately, in terms of mindfulness meditation, is about developing your attention on the present moment, such as your breath? Let's start with that as an example. You focus on your breath, you feel the sensations of your abdomen rising and falling, the sensations of the air coming in and out of your nostrils. And when your mind wanders, you return your attention to the sensations of the breath. That's the beginning of mindfulness meditation. Over and over again, your mind wanders, of course, and then you notice that your attention has wandered, you bring your attention back. So your question is great. Why would a practice like that actually help anything? I mean, okay, maybe it helps attention, and we've done a pilot study to show it actually helps people with attentional problems. So that makes sense. Okay, you're practicing the attentional circuits of the brain fine, and you're improving them. Why would it actually improve relationships? Well, this was really intriguing to me, and I'm very new to this area. My own background is in something called attachment research, which is studying the relationships between people and especially between parents and children. And I noticed a really fascinating similarity between the outcome measures in my own field of attachment research with healthy relationships revealing certain specific outcomes and studies have been going on for over two decades now, with the recent research coming out on the ancient practice of mindfulness meditation, especially from Kabat-Zinn and Davidson, and they seemed almost identical. So that you had these outcomes for secure attachment and then outcomes for mindfulness practice that were very, very similar. And then they overlap with yet a third area, which is going to sound really very strange, which is in my own clinical practice as a child psychiatrist, I was working with a family where there was a terrible car accident in one of the parents, and she damaged her prefrontal cortex, the area behind the forehead. And this is a very integrative region of the brain that ties 
widely distributed neural networks together into a whole, and she had lost several functions that were directly impairing her ability to be an effective parent, an effect, uh, a caring spouse, and to be a part of a loving family. And the findings of my researching into the existing brain research literature on what those prefrontal areas are involved in achieving were actually overlapping with secure attachment and with, it turns out, mindful awareness. So you have these three things going together. You have the integrative function of the prefrontal cortex. You have the outcomes of mindfulness-based stress reduction that don't study the brain in general. And then you have verified outcomes, not from brain research, but just from relational research. And so what I, what I ended up trying to explore in, in presenting this book, The Mindful Brain, was the idea that what these three things have in common is the nature of integration, that integration is the linking of separate things into a whole. And in secure attachment, what we see is that there's something called attunement, where parent tunes in to child, and then they have a resonance of their two states, an integration of their two minds, if you will. And that promotes well-being in an interpersonal attunement way. In mindful attention, I think what's happening is really you're tuning into yourself. You're having an observing self that is open and receptive to an experiencing self. And this attunement of the observing self with the experiencing self is a form of internal attunement. And both of those forms of attunement, I believe, and I go through the scientific reasoning behind this in the book, but the, the take-home message is I believe those two forms of attunement, interpersonal in terms of relationships and internal in terms of mindful awareness, actually stimulate the growth of a set of circuits in the brain that you can call the resonance circuits, which are ultimately involving these integrative fibers of the prefrontal cortex that actually regulate our physiology, regulate our relationships, and regulate our internal emotional states. And that's why you see these three things going together. That is, the prefrontal integration, uh, mindful awareness, and secure attachment go together with the way mind, body, and relationships can actually be help to develop and uh, function more effectively. You just mentioned the topic emotion, and uh, in the book you talk a little bit about how that can be regulated and and what emotion's actual purpose is. Yeah, emotion is a really interesting topic, Larry, because when I wrote a book called The Developing Mind, it was just trying to lay down kind of common vocabulary for different clinical fields to uh, and scientific fields to speak to each other. And when I was reviewing the research literature on emotion, I was fascinated to find that there was no common definition of emotion. And even among us as clinicians, if you sat down with 20 clinicians and said, what's an emotion, you'd get you know, 25 different <laughs> answers about what it is. Uh, and so it was hard to actually finish the book. And what fortunately popped out from reading all the different science, sciences like psychology or brain science or anthropology or social psychology about emotion was that they all sort of on a parenthetic note used the concept of integration. They would say, well, yeah, emotion integrates a person across the lifespan, or emotion integrates people and families, or emotion is what integrates the skull part of the nervous system with the body proper. Or whatever it was, they all talked about integration. So what I tried to do in the developing mind, which introduced this concept of interpersonal neurobiology, this kind of way of combining sciences to understand human experience and well-being, is to say, well, what if we took the word emotion and always thought of it as fundamentally an integrative process, integrative
integration means literally linking separate parts. And then in doing that, you could look at emotional disorders as times when we become disintegrated. You could look at emotional well-being as ways in which we are integrated. You can look at emotionally healthy families as individuals who are participating in a family unit where each separate individual is, is respected for their sovereignty, but then they're linked together in a we that's larger than the sum of the parts. And so in all these ways, you could actually look at emotion as a process, not a product, not, not a rock. It's more like a verb rather than a noun. And the verb is the process of integration. Dr. Daniel Siegel, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.